Welcome to this bumper edition of the Consultancy Business Podcast. We're here to help you build the consultancy nobody else can. This episode is called, for reasons that will quickly become clear, the Straight Talking Strategy Month. The biggest thing I think consultants to do is to get out of their own ego. Focus on the customer. It's always about the customer and it's about the customer and value. If we can do that, end of. Now, by the way, that is a lot of deep work for a lot of people. That's the work, right? That is what we need to do. That's Derry Llewellyn Davis. He's launched and scaled several businesses. He's an expert on developing business strategy and he's a leading advisor to ambitious and growing businesses. Derry and I have known each other for years and I'm delighted that he agreed to join us. This episode is a deep dive into Derry's approach and philosophy. It's longer than our usual episodes, but we covered so much ground in the conversation, we wanted to make sure you got the full benefit of it. I should also warn you, as you might expect with an episode that's all about being straight talking, some of the language in this episode is not for the faint of heart. Derry, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's very good day to be here, Phil. <laughs> so imagine that you and I had never met and we just bump into each other at some sort of god-awful networking event. You've got 30 seconds to a minute to tell me what it is you do. What would you say? I essentially help business owners, entrepreneurs, MDs, CEOs, just notice there's so many different titles out there, help them scale and get out of the gap that they have between where they are and where they need to be and scale that journey, which is a very difficult period to bridge, shall we say. And when I say scale, it's normally typically from the kind of one to two million to the 10, 20, 30 million. And, and that's the bridge. And give us a bit of a flavor for the kind of things that you help and support consultancies with. I came out of corporate, I went through the corporate ranks up to European board level. And the natural dodge for that was we kept on spending all this money on these consultants that came in and telling us what we already knew. And it was only because we wanted to cover our asses. So I went management consulting site. I worked for a couple of great prestigious boutiques, worked with a lot of the FTSE uh, 100, etc. So I spent a big part of my early career in the, the management consulting end. I then became really quite passionate about helping the smaller businesses in the mid space. Part of that was because of my early angel. I sort of moved angel side for a while, and I still do. Angel investment and investment capital raising is a huge part of what I do uh, and continue to advise on. And I just started to see these gaps in the mid spaces, like, because I was so used to corporate and all the pros and strengths the corporate have. I could just see this massive gap and this void in that what I thought was normal wasn't in the mid space and certainly wasn't in the startup space. And then I spent the, the, the next probably 15 years of that then uh, in a very much in the mid space. And I, that's where I've spent the last 15 years. I've sat on over 300 boards now. That sounds like a lot of num number. I, I used to sit on quite a few at one time through accelerator programs and stuff. And I love this consulting space. I think the space is changing a little bit, and I'm not going to deny that. However, I still think the fundamentals of this space 25 years on is the same. One of the things that you and I have in common, I think it's fair to say, Derry, is a belief perhaps that excellence in consulting isn't quite as common as we both might like. That's not a go at big consultancies or independent consultancies or anything. It's actually a comment on the industry as a whole, you know, that, that in general, the standards that you see out of many consultants and many consulting engagements aren't where one hopes they might be. And there's a lot of clients who report having quite bruising experiences with consultants and not being able to implement those recommendations and all the rest of it. I'm interested to kick around with you for a bit. What do you think in your experience over the last 25 years separates out the good consultants from the bad consultants? Good question. I, I put this in context because I think it's important how the industry's changed in this period, right? And the evolution of this industry. So let me just give you the 25-year shift and then I'll tell you why there's a load of shit out there right now. And by the way, I was you've got to be careful what you say on the stage. And I think 
I don't think you were in the audience this one, but that's where I, I stood on the stage to the National Mentoring and Consulting Forums, and I, I was keynoting. And I said, there's, at that time, and this was going back probably six, seven years, I said, there's about 25,000 business coaches in the UK, and I wouldn't let 22,000 taking my dog out for a walk. So that was that was videoed live and put on Twitter at the time. And I was like, oh, shit, you've got to be careful what you say on the stage. So now notice the word I used, by the way, business coaches. And I think this is, you used the word consulting. And I think the consulting world is word is still a safer word. But the problem is, is we've been mired by the coaching industry. Now, when you go back 25 years, coaching wasn't really around. Coaching was still sports coaches. It was still sat in a different camp. It hadn't emerged as it has today. And consulting was, you know, pure really back then. Now, what's happened over 25 years is the emergence of coaching, which then became executive coaching and then business coaching, um, which is an oxymoron, by the way, has now made this rapid growth of an industry where any Muppet can call themselves a business coach with no training, no qualifications, no regulation. That's what's really marred this industry. When I built BGI and you know, business growth strategy, which is what we do with the, the strategy on a page piece, I set an accreditation program, which we're bringing back, by the way, in, in a digital format. But we accredited over 120 consultants in the UK. When we recruited that, it was very clear. I coined the phrase CCM. You need to be a coach consultant mentor. I believe you need all three skill sets to be truly excellent in the small and mid space. In the larger space, it's different. You can be pure consultancy, pure executive coach up there, um, or pure mentoring. But in the small space, you'd need all three skills. Now, let me explain that. So if you're just a coach, which means you've been on a weekend training course, you called yourself a coach, decided you're now a business coach. The only thing you're doing is asking questions. That is pure coaching. It is asking questions. In fact, you're not supposed to be providing any answers or insight. And trust me, and I think we all recognize that if you're just asking questions to businesses, that's the blind leading the blind. And that's the problem in this industry is business coaching is taken on and they've called themselves, now a lot of business coaches then call themselves consultants. And that is where the mass of the problem, I think, in this industry has begun. Now, don't get me wrong, there's amazing business coaches out there. But to be an amazing business coach, you've probably got a consultancy piece to you too because you're actually giving advisory. Well, what does that truly mean? And I'll boil it back down, which is if we're not adding true value to the client we're dealing with, which is tangible and measurable, and we're not taking them from the place they, they currently are to the promised land, which is where they need to be, and there's not a very clear value exchange in that process. We've not done our job. And a lot of people aren't doing that. So this is why I don't believe this, the essence of consulting's changed, and I don't think it ever will. It's our job is to take them from what they don't know to what they do know. Unconscious incompetence to conscious competence. That's what we're trying to take them. And business coaches don't do that because by the very method that you're just going to get better at what you already know through a questioning process. So this is the issue. Now, therefore, how do we as consultants, those good one, good guys and girls out there, how do you stand out amongst that, that noise? Well, I heard in what you said around the shortcomings of coaching is really two things. So the first thing is that it is not enough just to ask businesses questions because a lot of the time what people who are running businesses need is something a bit more provocative or directive or additive than maybe a question. Although, of course, the other thing I heard is that there is an art to asking really good questions as well, to your point about good quality coaches out there. So just to examine that a little bit, it seems to me the whole coach consultant mentor thing is about being able to understand when it is appropriate that you're being non-directive and questioning, as opposed to when you need to be a bit more assertive and directive, maybe, with the clients that you've got. But on top of that, there is also another point, isn't there, which is the quality of your questioning has to be really good as well. You know, you don't get away with asking mediocre questions just because you've got a strong point of view elsewhere. So it seems to me that the job of getting good at questioning is itself a discipline that consultants need to be really good at. And it also seems to me the majority of consultants, certainly when we're talking about consultants in the accelerator space, 
might be people who lack direct insight into the organizations that they are consulting, coaching, mentoring with, simply because they've never actually been on that side of the table themselves. Which brings me to another question, which is, to what extent do you think it's important that coaches, consultants, and mentors have direct experience of the businesses that they're in? I go a bit further with that question. It's not just about direct experience of the businesses they're in. It's direct experience of the seat that they're advising. So if you're advising a CEO and you've not sat in a CEO seat, how do you know how they feel, right? Also, the size. Well, I think the, this is where mentoring comes in. And I think this is where mentoring has gone wrong. So, so just to be clear, I'm a massive fan of coaching and consulting and mentoring in their right place at the right time with the right person. But what you're saying about the direction is, is key. You have to know when to ask the precise question. This is why I think co- consultants being trained in coaching is hugely valuable. I've been trained in coaching because that allows me to ask the right questions and the precise questions at the right time. And you're brilliant at this, film. You know, this is where you know, you're able to go, and this is the key, is just knowing exactly where to dial that question, and that's coaching, right? And you've got to know when to do that. And consultants sometimes try to do everything. Because so once some consultant gets a client, they try to keep that client. I don't. I know where I play well. I know where I don't. The moment any form of marketing or anything that you know that's outside of my wheelhouse, I'll bring in my friends. And this is key. I think there needs to be a lot more collaboration in this space, right? But then back to the final piece, which is your question, which is mentoring, right? How can someone sit on, just because you've just run a business and you've run a business and you scaled a business and you've exited a business, now you're sitting on an accelerator, which is great, by the way. You've got great insight and that's really important. But that doesn't make you a coach. It also doesn't make you a consultant necessarily. It just makes you a mentor in that you've been through the journey, which there's great insight to be elicited. But you also got to be very careful that if they haven't been in your world, so you know, if if you if you've been in super high tech and now you're sitting in front trying to advise a consultancy, you have no idea how that consultancy works. Now there's crossovers, which is useful, but the precision of that, and I think the biggest gap to the question you've just asked is when you have someone that sat on a corporate board like me now sitting and advising a small business. That's where the gap, it's not just it's who you're advising, it's the size of the business you're advising. If you haven't run a small business, and by the way, I was guilty of this in probably the first 50 to 60 boards I sat on. I'd been in corporate, and the first 100 boards I sat on opened my eyes because I was like, wow, you're kidding me. You seriously don't have that. So I think the gap between advisor and I see corporate people who've done very successful corporate gigs advising a small business and sometimes that advice is so so dangerous because if you haven't had that pain and the cash flow pain and pinch points and understand the talent gaps and you don't have any support and you're doing everything if you haven't been there to advise on that because and whilst you're sitting on the board of Barclays it's just night and day so I think the the precision of advisory is super important and then the understanding of the person you invite is that the mentoring you have to have been there done that got the t-shirt in the space and the size you're talking you know talking to and i see a lot of damage being done by corporate people giving advice to small businesses and now don't get me wrong there's a lot of good people in this space but i think the context is so important it's true the other way around though as well isn't it in order to actually understand how large businesses function you have to have had some sort of experience working in or very closely with large businesses i think you know small business people consultants particularly engaging with larger organizations might not be able for example to read the political dynamics of those organizations terribly well or understand the process elements of how they need to work or understand the relationships that exist between different markets and so on so we had an interview with a consultant on this podcast a few episodes ago who was talking about the fact that she very strongly believes you have to have a direct experience of the type of business and indeed the industry that you're actually consulting in. Well, I'm not sure I agree on the industry point. I think it depends on the nature of the consulting work you're doing. So from my perspective, you know, doing work around, say, organizational change, I think you can be a bit more industry agnostic about that. Whereas actually, if you're in, say, I don't know, risk and compliance, then actually you probably do need to understand that world a bit more. But I think it is that thing of 
exactly what you're saying, which is the honesty, the authenticity, the confidence as well to be able to say, this isn't my wheelhouse mm. and I'm not going to stretch out of my... It's not so much about comfort zones. It's actually about competencies, isn't it? And I'm going to make sure that I play to my strengths in the work that I do. And yeah, without blowing smoke, that's something that I've always admired about you is the fact that you are exceptionally clear around what you are there to do and what you're not there to do. And you see being clear in that way as something which actually supports your practice performing in the way that you want doesn't actually rob you of opportunity at all. And I think that's something a lot more consultants could stand to learn from because a lot of consultants, I think, are engaged in a game of, oh, I'll just say I can do that, I'll say I can do that, and I'll make it up as I go along. You know, I've seen a lot of that in our industry, you know, and it doesn't work. And it's really bad for reputation as well. I don't know who your guest was, but I disagree with what she said. Uh, and I don't mean to be controversial out of context, but I think the small and the mid space need someone that can go cross industry. Now, where I typically work on a board, I am the cross-industry agnostic. So I agree with her that some consultants will come with industry depth and experience. Great. I, I, I want to work with some of them. So if I'm coming into a certain industry, I, I want the depth of the industry with me. I also like depth of precision. So, okay, let's bring the, the, the depth that, you know, you like if we're doing ISO or whatever, some audit, it's like depth of precision, right? Great. We need that. And I did this over time. I started off being specific because I'd come, I'd crossed corporate. I was very rare back in the day. I started off with British Oxygen on the leadership program. I went to Mars Inc. I went to Cable and Wireless and Elton and ended with Corning. I was so loyal, I refused to be go to a competitor. So I then spanned industries. When I then came out into consulting and management consulting, they pigeonholed me originally. So if there was a telco project, I'd be wheeled in because of my experience with cable and wireless, et cetera, et cetera. But slowly but surely, I started to, the, to just other industries started to ask me to come in. Fast forward 25 years, my power and my um, depth is actually being out of the industry because I think the dangerous part of that comment of, I think you need to be as a consultant, you know, industry specific and, you know, depth specific is, that's just perpetuating what's already going on in the industry. Sometimes an industry is so myopic, what you need is eyes outside the industry to see the obvious wood from the trees. And at a board level, that's what I bring to the table. And I know you do because you question from that. That means, by the way, I bring in the precision around me. So this is why I work with so many great consultants because I will, I'll bring in the depth. So when I'm on a board, I'm on a board of global fashion brand, Right. I'm not from fashion. So I sit on this board, but I bring threads from all other industries because they go, well, this is just how it works in fashion. And I'm like, well, that's mental to me. And so we start to get, start to break the, the mindset in the industry, which is where all great innovations come from. It's breaking the myopic thinking, right? So that's really important. But equally then, I want to buy my side, someone who's really experienced in the industry to go, who's also slightly open-minded, just doesn't, doesn't know what they don't know yet. So then that becomes really quite powerful right? The beyond industry and the co-industry together. Now, sometimes you can get that with the CEO. The CEO of the company typically knows the industry well enough that you don't need another person from the industry telling them what to do. So that's why a wider approach can work. But I think a lot of the power then comes from the precision. As soon as we know what we don't, we know, we know or we know what we don't know, and we need to, then, then you need the precision execution of consulting. So as a consultant, the most important thing you need to know is exactly who you are and exactly who you're not. And I think this is the clearer we are on that. The moment we go into a client and we just try to do fucking everything for that client, that's when the wheels come off the bus. And this is when we get shabby delivery and, and piss poor performance and execution because we're just trying to do too much. I'm the first person to say, yeah, do you know what? You need to do that. That's not my bag. I'll bring in Phil or I'll bring in Susie or Bob or whoever. And that's the key. Is, and I think the more we can work together in this industry and collaborate, the more value we can bring to our clients. The core hypothesis of what we're trying to do is that we are stronger together, right? 100%. That we all have something different and unique and valuable to offer to clients. And it's really just a question of being able to go, how independently can we learn from one another and whether our opportunities, how can we collaborate and how do we make the pie bigger for everybody? 
you know, in a sense, the larger consultancies actually do it quite well just by virtue of size. You know, if you're talking to one of the big consultancies, they will actually have, you know, very good at assembling teams of people from across practice areas in order to be able to look at specific client problems or whatnot. We as independents, being kind of lone wolves by preference, and I think sometimes being influenced by a sort of scarcity mentality, a belief that anybody else in consulting represents competitive threat, all that kind of stuff, are much less willing to do it. And of course, it's hard to win a client, which is actually a big disincentive to be able to then maybe share out the spoils when you are winning clients. Nevertheless, it's the only way actually to build a healthy consultancy business, which is exactly what you've just been talking to. To go back to what you were saying earlier on, you were talking about sales and the fact that consultants need to get good at sales. I think it's a really important point for us to pick up, Derry, because heading into 2024, when this podcast will be going out, a lot of consultants at the moment are really, really worried about market conditions, whether it's poor economic performance, whether it's client budgets being cut. And there's this kind of sense of decline and this sense of scarcity. And it feels, and I'm having conversations with consultants all day, every day, it feels to a lot of us like it's getting harder than ever to sell projects. It's getting harder than ever to get paid fairly for those projects. And it's just really tough out there. Well, I say yes and no to that, by the way, because the other interesting thing, if you look at the data from the Management Consultancies Association, is that consulting is actually growing as an industry. It's not It's not in decline at all in terms of the pounds, shillings, and pence that clients are spending on this. Nevertheless, though, a lot of consultants are finding selling quite hard. Certainly independent consultants are. So let's examine that for a while. So you said consultants need to be good at selling, and a lot of them aren't terribly good at selling. What again, in your experience, differentiates good selling in consulting from not good selling in consulting? And what differentiates the good salesperson in consulting from the poor salesperson? This is where you've got to go back to the data. And I always say this, right? Your strategy on a page, we begin with what's the market opportunity, right? Is the market there? Because if there's not a market there, then you're mental. You know, if you're trying to sell chocolate teapots, it's probably not going to work unless for novelty and it's going to be a very small thing at Christmas time, maybe, right? But it's the size of the market's important. Consulting is, is booming and the data backs it, which you've just proven, Phil, right? So if you are struggling to sell consultancy services, it's got nothing to do with the market opportunity. And for most independent consultants listening to this, the fact that you, you, know, you want to be a six-figure business or a seven-figure business or whatever is so minute in the grand scheme of the multi-billion dollar consultancy market. If you're not getting enough work, there's only two things – well, there's three things. You could be shit. If you're shit at what you do, then that's your point. I can't help you with that, right? But if you're an excellent consultant and you do excellent work and add value to your clients and you're struggling with your consultancy business, there's only two things. You've got no marketing and no lead flow coming in and you're not out there and you're not selling or you can't sell and you can't convert. That's the only reason because it's not the market. It's just not from a data perspective, right? That's really important to put that in context before we address the sales piece, right, Phil? Your pipeline and your cash in bank account is directly related to the number of coffees you're having at the front end. You can substitute that with green juices these days, whatever else you want to put in as that thing. But if you're not sitting in front of prospective clients having conversations about real business and you're not doing that all of the time, you're not going to have strong pipeline and you're not going to be converting. Because a lot of people go, I am really struggling. I'm like, well, how many sales calls have you done this month? Oh, you don't understand. You know, I don't do sales calls. Well, I, you know, you don't understand because if you don't do sales calls, you're not getting any business. So the problem in this area is the guys who smash it are the ones that have come from sales background, right? Most consultants are classic e-myth technician business owners where they're brilliant at something they're great at delivering whatever they're great at which is the precision consultant and they just think the world should basically lay apart their door and and business should drop on their lap and also sales in the uk is it like a bit of a dirty word no don't i'm a consultant we don't don't do that selling thing it's like well good luck then building your business you're screwed and so what differentiates it's the ability to understand sales 
and to be able to truly understand the sales process, and it is a process, and be able to guide your clients to it. Now, before we get into it, it's not shenanigans or anything like this. I mean, I'll give you very basics of what you must be able to do with a client, right? You must know the client deeply. Shut the fuck up and listen. That's the key to sales. We talked about questioning earlier from a delivery perspective. The best questions and the most precise questions come before you ever, ever before you start delivering. It's in the sales process, which is where are you right now? Truly, what's the numbers? How are you measuring that? Are you where you want to be? What's your ambition? Where do you want to go? If you don't understand the situation of that client fully and in depth, you've got no chance of selling anything. And by the way, people then just usually crack onto something, and this consultants are the worst. They'll have a quick chat, and then they'll see something that they like, and they'll just dive down their throats and just give them everything they need. In any form of sales call, you should not be delivering or giving any form of strategic advice in any way, shape, or form. You should be shutting up and listening to diagnose, and here's the key, to diagnose whether or not you want to work with that client. So many people are in a sales call just wanting to convert and get the business. I'm not. I'm deciding whether I want to work with them. And most importantly, whether or not I can add a shitload of value to that person. So when it comes to the point of conversion and whether they want to work with me, the fee that they're going to pay for me is such a no-brainer because the value I can bring is so high that it, the transaction's just an easy, frictionless path. So sales is a, a beautiful and elegant conversation. And it should be, hey, tell me where you are right now. Tell me where you want to be. Are you really committed to getting there? Do you understand the value impact of what you've of that journey? And then and what's your gaps and what's stopping you? And if I can then help that, now this is where it's really important to collaborate with other consultants. Because a lot of the time you'd be sitting in front of that client, you go, I totally get it. What you really need is next is X. That's not me. But I tell you what, I'll hook you into my friend Phil. If the best consultants in the world can all ga gather together, truly understand the value impact of a sales conversation and be able to gather that and deliver true value to the client, either yourself or to other people, then that's game changing for everyone. And I noticed the word value. We must be bringing value. And you can only elicit that value if you're really, really clear on where they are, where they want to be, and what that value means to them. So that's the Muppet Proof Guide to Selling. But I think so many consultants just avoid this, this piece of the puzzle, right? Contrast that with a few weeks ago. I will preserve names here to protect the guilty. But we are out there in the world looking for a NED in one of my practices at the moment. And myself and my business partner sat down with this guy and... He started off by talking for 15 minutes about how his last business he'd taken from X to Y and he'd sold it for, he was claiming billions, which led to a really interesting line of questioning in my head, which is why on earth are you sat around the table talking to me if your last business sold for billions? I got to about half an hour into this conversation and realized, because it was actually quite irritating, and it re I realized half an hour in that he hadn't actually asked me a single question about what it was we were looking to do, why we were sat around the table, what our needs were at that time, what our frustrations were at that time, anything. When I said to him towards the end of the conversation, do you have any questions? He said, yes, when can we start? <laughs> at which point, I mean, literally there was like a fill-shaped hole in the, in the wall, right? What I was picking up from him was a kind of desperation to establish credibility and prove value, that he could add value, right? Whereas I think sometimes in consulting, what we actually need to do is just get good at, as you say, shutting up, listening, but actually managing ourselves as well and holding that uncomfortable space and being able to go, I don't know what the answer is here or I don't know precisely where this conversation is going to go, or I don't even know if I'm the right person to be sat having this conversation with, and just sort of sitting with that and remaining completely open-minded and allowing a client to kind of explore where they're at. And certainly from my point of view, I mean, this happened only about a week ago, sat with a client, I'm thinking he's talking away, and I'm thinking, I just don't think I can help. 
you know, I don't think there's anything we can do. And then about two thirds of the way through what he said, I was like, bing, I have an idea, you know, and that idea turned into something we're actually now doing together. There's a sort of trust needed in a process, I think, and it's trust that's needed in a process of deep listening and in your own knowledge, your own experience, your own value, such that actually you kind of trust, well, either the right answer is going to bubble up or the right way into the conversation or the right way of shaping the conversation is going to bubble up. Or it's not. And if it doesn't, it just means this client's probably not the right fit. Here's the killer. The client doesn't give a shit about you. Never will, by the way. All he cares about is himself or herself, where they are right now and where they want to get to and whether a person can help them do that. Now, only the only time your credibility comes in is if you can help them. But they don't know that until they've discovered it themselves. And by the way, a lot of the clients don't even know where they need to the help, which is why you have to elicit it even more. A lot of the time, people come to me for one thing, and they end up getting three other things that they didn't even know they needed. And that's the key to the listening piece. You alluded to one of my tricks earlier, right? And I think it's the most important question of them all. When I think I've got it all, so when I've listened deeply enough, and I mean, in any form of, call it a strategy call, right? It's the first call you have with someone to elicit whether or not you wish to work with them or not, and they're going to engage with you or not. If there's not a 90-10 ratio of them speaking and you listening, your call's off, guaranteed. And when you get into the very end, when you think it's pretty much done and you think you've got everything, by the way, now you're firing as a consultant, because if you think it's good, you're either gone, gone this doesn't work, actually, and you can go, Really, so I'm not the right fit for you. But, and this is why I've got a, ma a very wide network. Because a lot of times, it's not, it, you know, it's not the right time for you and me right now. But I think what I hear is you need to be with this person over here. So signposting is, I think, one of the most valuable things you can do on a no, which is you don't leave them hanging unless you point them somewhere else. Right. And this is why having a wide network is really helpful because you also, you've just, the number of times I've signposted someone and they've come back years later and then want to work with me then because they're much bigger and they're in the right size and they've got the right pain then is insane. So it's like, because I built trust and I helped them by just pointing them to the right person at that point in their journey. So just knowing what to do at the right time and how to signpost them. But then at the very end, when you think you know it all, now because consultancy brain kicks in, I've got this one, I know exactly what their problem is, and I'm going to just say, so what I understand, what you've said, you've got to repeat back, because a lot of the time they've just talked to you for like 30, 40, 50 minutes, and you must repeat back to them to say, what I just heard was this. Is that accurate, right? So you must repeat it back, because half the time they've just forgotten what they've just told you. So you've got to get verification. Is that I hear that you're here, this is where you want to go, your biggest pain points is this, this, and this. Is that accurate? Yes. Is there anything I've missed? Is there anything else you want to tell me that can help me help you? And that's the number of times that has come up with a corker. Because, by the way, the first 10, 15, possibly even 30 minutes of a conversation, they haven't fully trusted you yet. And this is really important. That trust in that first sales call... And by the way, just by sitting back and listening, that is huge trust. Because very few people have just been listened to for a long period of time. And I mean, I've had conversations with investors and the rest of it where I've sat there for an hour and listened. At the end of it, they've gone, that was really great, really great connecting with you, such a great conversation, can't wait to get working with you. Haven't told them anything, done nothing. I asked two questions and they're in. Because they well, there's actually back. research to back this up, right? So research that's been done around psychotherapy, for example, that says the process of actually having somebody properly and fully listen to you has therapeutic benefit. Mm. And it has therapeutic benefit because actually what's being communicated to the individual is that you have something to say that is worth listening to. And so many people, I personally believe, Derry, go through the world of work and they can go for days, weeks, months, even years sometimes without anybody actually listening to them properly. Most of the time in work, people aren't really in conversations. They're just in campaigns. You know, they're just trying to wait for their moment to say the thing that they want to say. So there is absolutely therapeutic benefit and there's real benefit in terms of building trust and confidence and everything else in that listening activity. And as I say, the research backs that up.
there's something about the number of times when you listen and you listen and you listen and you listen and you build that trust. And then right at the end of the conversation, the question, is there anything else? Is there anything you wish you'd have told me that you hadn't? And actually, that's when you get the real story or you get the thing that's really keeping them up at night or anything else. And then you've got a decision to make about whether or not it's right that you work with them. But it feels like there's just a lot in that to kind of practice. And I do think it's a practice. I do think it's a skill. I want to talk about consultants getting in their own way in terms of being paid what they're worth and if there's any insight you can bring to us about how it is you actually should be pricing to what you're worth. Getting paid what you're worth, I think that's a a bullshit question and I'm going to turn the question, right? So uh, because you all think you're worth something and you all want to get paid what you're worth. Well, I don't care what you think you're worth. The only thing that matters is how much true value you bring to the client in their eyes, not yours. So I obviously I'm being pedantic here, but this is important, right? Which is when I'm having this conversation, I'm having this cup of coffee and I'm listening and listening and listening, I'm assessing if they have a problem, right? So if you've not done sales before, I really recommend you look at some methodology and you read up on some methodology of sales because otherwise you're clueless and you're going to, you're either struggling too hard or you're going to fail, right? So I think the challenger sale is probably one of the better plays in this space. What we're doing, we've refilmed um, the accreditation piece. And what I put back into the new one, Phil, is actually teaching consultants how to sell because I think this is the biggest gap they've got, right? And the key with this is, but I, I want to earn four grand a day. I'm like, that's very nice. How much value are you bring in a day? And it's like, no, no, you don't understand. I, I want to earn four grand a day. No, you don't understand. The client doesn't give a shit what you want to earn. The client wants to have value. So that listening is I'm listening for problems. So in spin methodology, situation, problem, identification, implication, need payoff, right? You must know the client's situation. If they ha- don't have a problem, you don't have a sale, right? And if the implication of that problem is not big enough that it more than justifies your fee, you equally don't have a sale right? So the key is is in the sales call. The key is is to identify the problem and the implication of that problem to them in monetary terms and pain terms that when your fee becomes the next question, then it's irrelevant because their pain is so big. Now, this is where I've I've had a lot more experience as well, right, than than a lot of people. So this is where, for me, I, I know my worth. In my head, I've got a kind of ratio. If someone's going to pay me, you know, five grand, I want to be able to add 50. That's in my head. And also, I because of what I do structurally and strategically and also from a cap raise perspective and things like that, like the value I can bring is so, okay, so if I can help you do that, you know, half a million quid raise to do the scale next level, what's the, it's just the the value is really obvious if, if it plays right. So this is where you've got to decompartmentalize your idea of, I want this day right and this is what I'm worth. Well, is that what the market thinks and is that the value you're bringing? I'm not being trying to be an ass with your question, but you see, I, th- I think no one cares what you think you're worth. The only thing they care about is the value you can bring to them and is that justifiable? And I think if you're sitting there trying to sell a £2,000, you know, you, you want two grand for the day or whatever, but you do not bring £2,000 worth of value, good luck selling that, right? Because... Why would you? So it's value exchange is the key. I think if you're not in a position where you can confidently state that the engagement you're about to embark on can confidently add considerably more value than the fees that are being charged for that engagement, not only have you not got a sale, there's another question, which is ethically, why are you there in the first place? Right. (laughs) The two things that consultants come back and say both of which I'm inclined to challenge, by the way, are one, well, it can be very, very hard to understand the actual impact of my work, to which my stock response is work harder to understand the impact of your work. And there's actually a good set of conversations you can have with clients past and present about the impact of your work if you need to get more insight on that. And the other thing that they say is, well, you know, I can't afford to work for less than X per day. Well, that may be the case, but it's not actually the client's problem. 
I think also what happens, by the way, in the I need to earn X conversation is that also consultants become fixated on achieving a certain recovery rate for their time. And then actually they miss the bigger opportunity sometimes as well, right? So so what happens is they're going, I, I, I need to get paid, say, £2,000 a day. Well, actually, if you've done your job properly and you've understood the value, the value to the client might be £4,000 a day. So in which case, you've literally just sold for half of what your time is actually worth to that client. So all of which is back to listening, isn't it? The biggest thing I think consultants to do is to get out of their own ego. That's the biggest thing they can do for everything, certainly at the front. And also consultants think they, they have that ego then is attached to worth, and this is what destroys everything. Focus on the customer. It's always about the customer, and it's about the customer and value. If we can do that, end of. Now, by the way, that is a lot of deep work for a lot of people. So I'm not ignoring that. And by the way, that's the work, right? That is what we need to do. So now I will add a bit that I do in the sales process, which you know about, Phil, and I think this is one of the most powerful things. Now, this is where this is where the rubber hits the road. If you sit in front of a client and you've listened deeply and you can definitely solve that problem and you know that the value you're going to give that client is significantly more than they're going to pay you, but you're getting your worth and some and the client's getting more than that in delivery value and everyone's happy. Great. The only reason that client's going to not buy now, so if you've concluded that and we're all agreed on that, the only the only reason the client says no is because they don't believe you or they don't they don't trust you can deliver the value. That's the only reason. Right. So how do you remove that up? Because a lot of pe- a lot of sales shenanigans is like oh handling objections, the rest of it. I'm not interested in handling objections. I remove all objections. So my final piece, now you've got to be very careful about what you do next. I am experienced enough to be able to do this, right? But so if I sit down in front of Phil, and you feel I did it with you, you saw me do it, right? And um, you see me do this multiple times. So we get to a place, and so I've listened deeply. I truly understand the client. I like the client, number one. I only work with people I like because I'm going to have to trust them and, and like them and have their backs in times when they don't even have their own. So I like them, like the business, absolutely can see the value I can add and it's significant. And I'm like, can absolutely help you. This is what I do. This is how it works. Here's my fee. Let's begin. Now there's a block. Now at this point they're going, great, I wanted that. Oh shit, the fee's a bit heavy. And then the psychology kicking behind this now is, oh, what if he doesn't deliver? Oh, what if he can't? Because that's, that's natural psychology. You could go deep into psychology for this. It's all there, right? Because it's the first trigger of like, oh, it's the first fear mechanism of what if they don't? Oh, and why? Because a lot of them have had bad experiences, heard bad experiences, had a shit business coach, had this, promised the world, didn't deliver shit, right? So what's my company promise? Okay, let's engage. Let's get on with this. I guarantee you the first half a day or day in some cases, but mostly half a day these days. So I will come in and do the work. You pay me. You pay me up front because we're not messing around with cash and money's on that because then that's also proven that they've got affordability. That's an ethical thing from my side, by the way. It's not just a money thing. And do you know what? After half a day, you know, four hours delivery, that I'm not smashing it. I'm not delivering significant value and you're not totally happy. I give you your money back. So I guarantee it. Now, if you can't guarantee your value, I would suggest you haven't done the thinking deep enough because you've got to prove that you can do what you say you can do, which can happen very fast. So you might just want to promise the first piece with the first part of that engagement is this first three grand piece. And by the way, this seems like it's all on the client's side. It's not actually. It's for me too because it also gives me an out. After four hours, if I think the client's an ass, I will end it at that point too and give them their money back because I don't want to work with them anymore. So let's talk a bit more about the relationship with money then in terms of what consultants want to be earning and how that sits in amongst the broader strategy for how they're growing and running their businesses. So you've talked a little bit on this call about BGI, your business, and I think it's fair to say that what you offer in BGI is very complementary to what we do at the consultancy business. So with the consultancy business, what we're teaching you is the business skills, you know, and mentoring you around that. So actually, and you get the opportunity to connect with other consultants from a collaboration point of view as well, so that actually in the end, you're able to survive and thrive in a market that is almost completely indifferent to your survival because you've got some of those commercial skills and everything else. 
what you're offering, Derry, I think is really complementary in the sense that, A, it will help consultants think through the strategy for the development of their practice. And secondly, it's actually a tool that they can use with clients if they wish. And to my earlier point, finance is part of that as well. So how much money you want to earn and need to earn to get the lifestyle you want is a very, very important part of building the right consulting practice. So I would just love any reflections you've got around both of those things, really. So firstly, consultants' relationship with their own money and how they think about money in the context of building their own business. And secondly, let's just talk a little bit about where that fits in the whole BGI jigsaw. And I've always been a massive advocate of, I think consultancy can, a consultancy business can be a perfect business to create an incredible lifestyle, as well as doing good to the world and delivering massive value. I've said that for 20 years and even more so today. I also think it can be a complete trap and it can be the very thing that's supposed to free you can trap you. By the way, it's the same in every business. I think a lot of consultants, they want to build, they come in, they want freedom, autonomy. They want to earn enough money to love the lifestyle they choose. Now, the question then is, what is that lifestyle? What is that time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's got to be architected. Now, there's a different business that um, has been relaunched called Diamond Life Design. That is actually about architecting life. And I think that's a really important thing here for consultants, by the way. Architect your life so the consultancy supports it. You know, when I... Very, you know, going back 20 years when I made the decision to go properly consulting side and autonomous on that, it was about freedom. I wanted to be there for my children as they were growing up. I wanted time. I wanted adventure. I'm a big adventurer. I like to go off doing crazy shit all over the world all the time. So time freedom was was hugely important to me. And of course, you need the cash to be able to do that. Uh, And I don't know what your number is, but you need to know it. So you need to model your consultancy business properly and cash flow it properly. I think consultants are so guilty of not managing their own ship properly. You know, most consultants don't have, you know, I don't like business plans, but strategy, right? Which is execution, measurement, accountability, which is why I love the work you're doing, Phil, right? So I think we need that because we're, we're in our own little echo chamber and we're in our own little bubble. So just be clear on what life you want, right? Now, if you're sitting there and you're working every hour God sends all day in the weekends, you've not got any time, you've built the wrong practice. And this comes back to pricing, cash flow, et cetera. I mean, you've got to really model this. So this is proper cash flow planning, proper P&L, proper balance sheet. You should be running a consultancy business like a grown-up business. Because one, it's the right thing to do. And two, the wheels will come off the bus very quickly if you're not articulating your numbers. And I think a lot of consultants are very guilty of not doing this properly, right? And what is that number? Now, this is why, oh, you, I need to earn this. Well, hang on a minute. Rewind. What is the real number you need? For what reasons? And therefore, break that down how many days a week, etc. Now, if you are have to do five days a week at full rate to be able to earn a living, I think you're doing the wrong thing. You need to have flex in there. And I think most consultants couldn't be working off a kind of three-day week at, at the rate that they deserve with great planning and still have an amazing life. And the reason I say that is because what happens is, is, is ebbs and flows. Typically, you'll get a client and be careful on whale hunting. You know, a lot of people just have one client. I'm like, well, that's not, you're not really a consultant. You're just an employee. You're um, a contractor. You're a contractor. Actually, that's, that's, what, that's what you are. You're a contractor. And it's not a, it's just an innately risky position to allow yourself to get into. I just think, just to jump in there, I think one of the things that, new consultants really struggle with. I think the journey into consulting is something like this, right? Which is I'm really experienced, say, in the corporate world. And for whatever reason to do with lifestyle or to do with my, perhaps I've been offered some fantastic redundancy package or perhaps I've been offered a less than fantastic redundancy package, but I haven't really been given much of a choice about whether or not to take it. And then I think, oh, I quite fancy being a consultant. And actually, in most cases, I've got a lot of value to add because I'm dead experienced and I know my domain really quite well. And then what happens is they win their first client, which might in some cases actually be the organization that they've just exited. Because, you know, I've seen it happen in cases of redundancy and I've seen it happen in cases of someone resigning. Someone sits there and goes, well, actually, we still need you for a bit. So that individual then does three to six months consulting for that company, usually on a fairly high day rate. Then at some point, that drawbridge gets pulled up, at which point then they suddenly get confronted with 
the fact that they need to understand how to sell, they need to understand the business model of consulting, they need to actually think through their pricing properly. They need to do all the work you're talking about as well, which is actually working through what is the nature of the consultancy that they actually need to build at the level of the strategy for the business, not just at the level of actually making sure it's a distinctive and unique and interesting proposition, you know. And that's when I think reality starts to bite. So 80% of consultancies in the US and the UK fail in the first two years. And although I can't get to the data on this, my hypothesis is that actually what's happening in a lot of cases is that people enter consulting, but they enter consulting with a single client in the way that you're saying, effectively as a contractor, because it's a kind of offboarding from existing employment and then at some point the drawbridge gets pulled up and then they found themselves a bit cold and alone and those are the kind of individuals that I'm hoping we'll be able to reach because they're really really capable from a domain knowledge point of view what they need is distinctions about how to build a business which is what we're here to do and distinctions around what strategy and what business growth approaches are going to work for them which is what you're here to do what you truly want if you want freedom is a blend of clients. The moment you are reliant, so I, I like to use indicators in business. So strategy on a page has numbers all over it, right? It's got it's got indicators. One of the indicators I love the most in business is certainly in, in consultants as well, percentage of reliance on one client. In, in bigger businesses, what's your percentage of reliance on your top 10 clients or your, your top five clients? In a consultancy business, if you've got more than a kind of 20%, 25% reliance on one client from a revenue perspective, that's, that's difficult, right? Because it's still manageable at that point. If you've got 50% reliance on a client, you're screwed because now you're actually over the barrel by that client. And this is where it's, you get dysfunctional relationships and bullying because you're de- you, you can't lose that client. So they should do anything for that client. And, you'll, and this is also where consultants want to collaborate because they're desperate to keep what they've got, which, is, which is eliminates the collaboration piece. And then they're fearful of losing clients. And therefore, they won't actually tell a client what they really need to tell a client because they're fearful of losing the client. It's a very dysfunctional relationship. So, you know, if you've got that 20% reliance on a, a client, that means you've got typically four or five clients, right? You could lose one and it's not going to, it's not going to be, you know, it's going to hurt a little bit, but it's not going to take the wheels off the bus. And also you've got the confidence to be able to, to lose one or get rid of a shit client and, and without, you know, having a panic attack. Now, this is back to sales. Just because someone's come out of consultants and landed their first gig with someone they already know, that means they can't sell. If you have to be able to go wider, you need to be able to do this, right? So uh, this, this for me, this balancing of client portfolio, the balancing of risk is so important. But you've got to build with the end in mind. If you don't know that, you just build the wrong damn thing. And what happens is you might land a client, and this is the whale hunting piece. A lot of clients, they land a client, and they're like, oh, I just got a 50 grand client. Wow. And then they just get, they put their head down, arse up, and they end up delivering on that client for three, six, nine, 12 months, however long it takes. And then the project ends. Well, you just lost your job. You just basically, you had a job for six months and you lost it because you didn't put resilience. You weren't selling. I, this is why I always encourage, you know, three days a week from a delivery perspective. You should always have one day of the week where you're focused on the strategy, focused on pipeline, focused on selling. 20% of time allocated consistently to networking and, and keeping your eye on the marketplace and selling. and Because that means you're constantly moving forward. You're constantly moving. And if anything happens, you're resilient to that. Well, there you are. You've had the full experience of the force of nature that is strategy consultant, Derry Llewellyn Davis. What he was saying at the end there made me think, it's so important when you're building the architecture of your life and how your life interfaces with your work, don't build yourself a prison. Build yourself a business that works for you and works for your life. That's such an important part of our mission at the consultancy business. And it's one that I hope you feel is a really important one for you too. Anyway, for more information about Derry's work at BGI, head on to bgistrategy.com. You can also track Derry down on LinkedIn. That's it from me and the consultancy business team. Get sending us your questions and scenarios so that we can work on answering them in upcoming episodes. For now, I hope that's been helpful. See you soon.